Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Hope you're doing well wherever you are. I want to start just by talking about the recent post that I released explaining the change of the name for the show from Hacking Consciousness to Hacking the Self. Just in case you happen to miss that post or if you're new to the show and you're looking at past posts that were called Hacking Consciousness. So I'd encourage you to check out the name of that post if you want a more detailed explanation. It has a very straightforward title with something like announcement, changing the name to Hacking the Self. But the basic reason for it, the main reason, was that there was there is an organization called Consciousness Hacking. And in order to avoid confusion with that organization, I changed the name of my show and I chose to do that because they'd already been established for quite some time. And both the founder of that organization, Mikey Siegel, who's a great guy, who's going to be coming on this show very soon, and I both wanted to avoid confusion around that topic. And so when I realized that they had intentions to move into the podcast space that I offered to change the name of the show. And so did that. I want to also say that I think it's a really positive thing for a few reasons. And one of them, I think, is that the rebranding of the show is actually going to speak a little bit more to some of the content that I want to cover on the show. So hacking the self, and I chose self as opposed to the mind, because I really want to emphasize the mind-body connection, because I don't believe simply that consciousness is a epiphenomenon of the brain, which is one of the debates around consciousness. I do think that what we put into our bodies, the state of our bodies, whether it's you know nutrition, whether it's our exercise, sleep, all of this, we know this, it deeply affects the quality of our consciousness, our mood, our ability to perform cognitively at a higher level. So I want to emphasize that and I want to talk about certain things on this show that include not only the mind but also the body. So absolutely want to talk about meditation and breathing exercises and psychedelics and float tanks and all these things that are profound tools for exploring the mind but you know every one of those things i just listed also involves the mind-body connection so for example what makes the float tank such a powerful experience is the fact that you're floating your your senses are totally deprived of all the stimuli to which they're normally exposed you're in a zero gravity environment which in a lot of ways makes it easier to go deep into meditation than a seated meditation so I think that mind-body connection is inherent. It's something that we miss a lot when we talk about the mind in the West, and hence why I didn't simply want to call it hacking the mind. I also want to really talk about things like nutrition and exercise and the latest trends and sort of the quantified self-movement and biohacking. And, And so anything that's really relevant to health, on a physical level, because I think that mental and emotional health is inevitably tied up with our physical health. And even when we talk about something like how we're doing in terms of our, you know, spirituality and spirit, spirit is very much and how our spirit feels is 
certainly caught up in our physical health. You know, I think one thing that spiritual practices can help us to do is find some sort of, if not happiness, equanimity, acceptance, even in difficult times, like when our physical health might be lagging. But there's no question that we need to take care of our bodies in order to have a very strong sense of not only mental and emotional health, but I would call it spirit. You know, it's all about respecting yourself because the body is the the temple in which consciousness resides. It's something that I'm super conscious of because my parents both struggled with a lot and my mom still struggles with a lot of health issues. And so I'm very cognizant of how fragile our health is. And it's, it's something that I want to give voice to and explore on this show. And I hope that leaves people with a lot of practical tips. So that said about the name change, let me introduce today's guest who is a perfect guest for kind of making this segue and talking about physical health. And he's someone who really also emphasizes how physical, mental, emotional health is all interwoven. I had the chance to meet up with him in person when I was in Melbourne, Australia last week. He's an awesome guy and he's incredibly knowledgeable about a number of fields relating to health. In particular, he really specializes in knowledge around a lot of the science around sleep and lighting, but we also touched on nutrition as well. So Dane Barkley was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. He is a certified bulletproof human potential coach and a primal health coach with a primary focus on quantum health principles and sleep. His philosophy towards health and wellness encompasses a holistic approach of body, mind, and spirit, integrating ancient wisdom with modern science and technology, which really makes Dane a great fit for this show because he has that interest in integrating East and West, ancient and modern, which is really at the heart of what I'm trying to do on this show. And I actually got to know Dane or came across his name first because I read Dave Asprey's recent book, Headstrong. Dave Asprey's the founder of Bulletproof, whose training Dane did. And while I definitely have some questions about some of the claims that I think Dave made in the book, I think that he's got a lot of great ideas and he he really brought some important issues to my attention. It was certainly a worthwhile read and we got into some of those issues here with Dane, but we didn't focus exclusively by any means on Bulletproof. In fact, we just touched on it a bit and then branched out into other topics that are also of interest to anyone really in the biohacking field for sure. So with that said, I will now introduce you to my conversation with Dane Barkley. Dane, how are you? I'm great, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for making the time. You're welcome. It's three o'clock this afternoon, so it's a, couldn't think of any better way to spend my time. Fantastic. I'm sure it's a lovely sunny day in Melbourne, and I'm, I'm happy that we had a chance to connect in person when I was there last week. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fantastic. I, I was um, quite lucky to, to catch up and take you to one of my favorite places, Grilled, and get you a, a burger, which I hope you enjoyed. Nice, healthy burger. Yeah, that was awesome. That was one of the better veggie burgers I've had for sure. So let's start by telling folks just a bit about 
your background and how you became so passionate about health and wellness? Yeah, so I guess I'll start when I was, I mean, my whole life growing up, I was quite fortunate to be brought up in such a sort of health conscious family. Both my parents are very um, in the health space. And so I've been brought up around that for most of my life. So I didn't know any different in a sense. So I was quite lucky in that area of things. But it was in my sort of early teens, early sort of adulthood, but I started to sort of, I had hay fever, quite chronic hay fever, and uh, which was quite, it was getting worse and worse into my early 20s. And so I had a lot of sort of injections to sort of test what areas of I was allergic to. And then I ended up having a procedure as well to sort of crack and scrape my nose and clear it out. It was the last sort of option at least. And it wasn't until I started to go into nutrition and work out how to sort of how that can have an impact on my health and especially hay fever that I um, sort of noticed how I was changing my diet and realized how that actually impacted on my hay fever. And so since then, uh, fortunately, I've been able to keep it at bay for the last fully four or five years at least now. And I know if I was to go back to the way my lifestyle and eating, it would be uh, the hay fever would come back on strong. And down here in Melbourne, hay fever is quite a sort of popular sort of symptom a lot of people have. And so that was an area which I guess is where I piqued my interest into health and nutrition and all that as well. It's where I sort of started. And then in 2014 is where I sort of, I kicked into the gear and started to sort of study this and and sort of pursue it professionally. So I went into the Institute for Integrated Nutrition and learned a lot of through there, got my certified health coach through there. And then I went on from there. It's just, it's just been snowballing since. I've been looking into paleo and primal. I got my primal health coach certification and other great courses itself. And then sort of of late, I went into the, the Bulletproof biohacking in the last couple of years and Again, went to the Bulletproof Training Institute and became one of only four Australians at this stage, the certified Bulletproof coach. So that's pretty much the my up until today, roughly, where I've been sort of going and I just constantly adapting and learning as I'm going along and changing things. And I never actually stick to one thing too long. I'm always learn from it and then move on to next. Can I ask before we really get into some of your big interests that you really focus on, what really made the difference with your hay fever in terms of your diet and nutrition? The biggest thing, most noticeable difference was the removal of, of gluten and, and grains specifically. It was when I had removed, I guess, all of my grains and pretty much all the gluten in my diet and majority of dairy as well, that was that subsided the the issues quite significantly and later on I, I realized that was due to I think it's the chronic inflammation throughout my body and so having the tweak to my diet and going towards more anti-inflammatory foods and away from pro-inflammatory foods like gluten and grains I was able to sort of yeah really drastically improve my hay fever symptoms Fascinating. Okay. Now, I'd, I'd planned on getting into nutrition later in the conversation, but I can't help but ask you one question now because you mentioned it about gluten and the anti-inflammation, you know, and the inflammation issues around it. So, I've read quite a bit about this issue and I, I genuinely, I genuinely, like a lot of things in nutrition, don't know what to believe. I've clearly inflammation anything that causes inflammation would be best to avoid. No question. Inflammation isn't good. It's connected to all these different diseases. But 
As far as the evidence for gluten causing inflammation in people who, and perhaps you're someone who's somewhere on that spectrum, I'd like to hear you talk about that of, if not full out celiacs, you know, disease somewhere on that spectrum. But I've really looked into giving up gluten myself, you know, and considered, is it something I should do? And the evidence seems very mixed in terms of what I found when I've looked at what's actually published in peer-reviewed journals. Some people will say it causes inflammation. Some people will say it doesn't. Similar thing for dairy, which I don't consume at all for other reasons. I just don't like dairy and don't enjoy having it in my body. I don't think it's best for my digestive system. But a lot of people assert that dairy causes inflammation, but a lot of the evidence seems to be mixed as well. And so in certain people, like I, I've done the nutrition, plant-based nutrition certificate with T. Colin Campbell, you know, based out of Cornell, super reputable. And he is strongly advocating people to eat whole grains and saying that unless you have celiac, that gluten does not cause issues and that the science behind it really isn't there in terms of what people claim. So what's your take on that? And how do we kind of make sense of this debate over gluten? Yeah, it is definitely a hard one. A lot of people um, have their own opinions exactly. And a lot of mixed data on that as well. My personal opinion on all of that is just getting, I guess, a strong self-awareness of how you feel after certain meals and how you feel with it or without it. The best thing you can do, I guess, anybody can do is, is self-experiment. And I mean, there are going to be so many uh, peer-reviewed data studies out there that's going to have a lot of all that. But if everyone's so individual, and that's what I've sort of found out over the years in my studies is that we're all so different. So for me specifically, I was probably having more sort of prone towards the allergies, therefore the gluten would aggravate that. And I had it probably for most of my life, I had it as well. So it doesn't mean when I have it now, it affects me as much. The fact that I removed it in my diet for a period of time I can quite easily have some gluten now and it, it won't have very little effect on me. I just choose not to eat it because I don't see much nutritional benefit in it for myself personally in my diet. So from that, yeah, I, I really highly recommend people just experiment. If they think they have a, a gluten sensitivity, best thing to do is remove it for a couple of weeks out of your diet and notice, I guess, notice how your body feels and how you feel as they, um, from energy levels and whether you feel sort of bloated or whether you feel better. Again, another big thing too is the I guess, the manufacturer of the actual gluten, so how you're actually consuming it. So a lot of, if you're having like a lot of sort of properly processed, I want to say properly processed sourdough and breads like that stuff are made um, in the right process is how they do it. If, they get, if you're getting it off the shelf from gluten that's in with additives and everything else, preservatives, it's not going to have any benefit towards your body whatsoever. So gluten is, it can be quite a um it can, can aggravate a lot of guts of people that are not really um in a great healthy state as well so it's it's ideal to be sort of i guess just test for yourself is the best thing to do and if you want to continue to eat gluten just be sort of conscious of the actual the type you're getting to the actual quality um, which is everything i advocate for anyway it's a quality so you can get a, a loaf of bread from a supermarket it has loaded full of just preservatives and additives or you can get an actual uh, freshly sort of made bread that still has gluten, but it's a lot better ingredients and, man and um, produced properly. That's a great point you raise. I mean, at the end of the day, well, uh, you know, I'm sure you and I and the rest of us who are interested in nutrition do would like more, you know, great evidence from randomized control trials. You know, at the end of the day, it's really about what matters for you, you know, because everyone is different. So that's a really, really great point. And I'm glad you said that. That's something I've come to appreciate 
especially through someone like my wife who didn't eat meat for years for ethical reasons. And then she came to realize that having a little bit of chicken or just a little bit of meat in her diet was what her body craved. So yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in that. You just got to, everyone's different for sure. One thing I wanted to ask you while we're still on the topic of nutrition, so let's just, uh, let's play this out a little bit since we ended up being on this topic is you mentioned about the importance of good, good quality health in your gut being central to the rest of your, your health, your digestive health. And I've certainly heard quite a bit about this, you know, people talking about the need for probiotics and other things. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly good gut health means, why it's so important to the rest of our body's functioning and some of your tips for maintaining good uh, gut health? Yeah, for sure. There's so many, I guess, the microbiome is, is um, all this sort of the gut bacteria that is booming now in the, um, the health industry. A lot of people are jumping on board with uh, ways to fix their gut, testing their gut for bad bacteria. That one's a, it's an area where it's, it's particular focus is people being pushing down probiotics and thinking that will just fix the problem and then it doesn't and then they look elsewhere. So, it's, it's a very complex area. I've focused a little bit on it in the past, not so much these days, but in terms of getting the right set of gut bacteria going in your gut, that, I feel like there's it's very multi-layered system that's going on there. So, most people focus just on usually nutrition. I know there's definitely a lot more at play. There's there's a lot more sort of epigenetics, so environmental factors as well that have an influence in your gut. It is a very broad um, area and topic at least to go on a nutrition for sure, having, as you said, the, the right quality food. If you're sticking to local organic and mainly whole food, you can't really go wrong. It's the, my best recommendation. Organic, obviously, to avoid the pesticides and the herbicides. Local, because it's it usually if you go to the farmer's markets, it would be in season. And so, the gut, the uh, the bacteria that's in the soils that in the season as well if you're consuming the vegetables and the, the produce in season it's also changing the um your gut bacteria every season as well so it's a it's it's a bizarre thing and how we're made up of so many sort of bacteria and uh, even parasites that are inside us as well some are good some are bad and we live symbiotically with them and it's a matter of just keeping it in balance when you have an imbalance that's when things start to go wrong so having the right probiotic as well to definitely definitely a difficult one to sort of work out i think getting having a right diet first to aim towards and eating more towards a whole food even yeah more plant-based too i'd recommend more vegetables over going heavy on your on your meats and your um and your carbohydrates at least vegetables is very important but having it local as well getting that in first and then eventually work out whether which probiotic might be good for you there's also foods that are quite high and in, in rich in probiotics, ones like sauerkraut, uh, something I consume quite often as well. And then there's also there's foods that are high in prebiotics. So prebiotics is the food that feeds the good bacteria in there. So unfortunately, some people, t- what I've seen, some people tend to just throw down probiotics and prebiotics and just think it's doing good, whereas actually there's feeding more and more bad bacteria in the gut. So the idea is to get that balanced properly. And then from there, build the good bacteria. So having an, almost a detox in a sense first to clear it and then you're building up strong good bacteria. Working with, I guess, a functional medical practitioner would be ideal for that. Um, you can get gut testing 
and then you can work your way up towards that. And that'll probably be the best place to start, I would say, for most people if they're looking towards, I guess, improving the microbiome or the gut bacteria. Otherwise, if you want to, if anyone wanted to see a functional medical doctor, they can quite easily just tend to stick towards the local organic produce and foods and then just see how they, they, they feel and start to sort of experiment themselves with different different products as well. Do you take probiotic and prebiotic supplements or does that just come naturally through Whole Foods? I I used to. I did for a period, but now it's more so Whole Foods. So I would have for the I, I can occasionally consume kefir. So local kefir down here, um goat kefir and which is a, a great prebiotic for the um the gut as well. And then I usually have sauerkraut as well. So I usually get it from my food. I also have green bananas. Um, it's very high in prebiotics, which is it's very starchy as well. So um, that is the again that's the feed the good bacteria. So I generally stick towards getting it from whole foods for me. But a lot of other people would probably rather just pop a pill. So I guess do your research and see what is out there. Um, I know there's a good there's a few good companies that have a sort of a lot of good strains that you can or even go towards people that you trust, um, health professionals that you trust, and see what they have to offer within the sort of the health space at least. Right. So you touched on your diet a little bit. You basically gave a little indication there. You talked about the importance of eating whole foods. It sounds like mostly plants, you know, lower in animal products and carbohydrates. But can you kind of flesh out for the audience just what is your basic philosophy towards your own diet and what are sort of your core nutritional principles? Yeah, well, for me uh, personally, what I've, I guess, experimented over the years, what I've got down to, which has worked really well for me, and it can work well for a lot of others too. Obviously, I recommend first is to, to constantly experiment and then find your sort of your balance for you. For me personally, I've found a, a lower carbohydrate diet, not so much ketogenic, just lower carbohydrate diet tends to be where I perform the best. And so I would usually from a, I guess, day-to-day standpoint, a breakfast is usually it's like a, a super smoothie. So I usually have, it's usually a coconut milk base. I either have, you have a ton of sort of, when I start with either whey protein base, I have a greens powder that I put in there as well. I mix that with, oh, what else? I got maca. I've got, I got berries in there. I get, it's quite a big mix of using medicinal mushrooms. It's a big mix of sort of quite a nutrient dense superfood smoothie purely out of convenience, but also just getting a good hit and, and usually starts me off the day well. I usually, another sort of area which I, I believe mo- this applies to most people out there in the world is to be able to intermittently fast. It's quite a sort of popular practice now, I guess you would say, within the, um, the health space and the biohacking community. But I think it's something that's going to take off within the next few years if people start to sort of get their heads around it. Yeah, be able to fast for short periods of time. I'm not a huge fan of, I guess, long periods of fast because it's quite, I guess, difficult for most people to to be able to sustain over the long term. If people that are really dedicated can look further into it, but I find intermittently fasting is quite effective. So whether that's for me, it's simply just finishing dinner off at six, seven o'clock at night and then not eating until either the following day at either 8 or 9 a.m. or even lunchtime. So it's usually about a 16 or 18 hour fast, ideally. And that is enough to clear out sort of the the bad old mitochondria in your cells and sort of clear through and let your digestive system just do its thing and not just constantly putting food on top of food and having yourself clear out. So that's something in the area which, I mean, it makes life a lot cheaper as well. You have to constantly eat. Um, you can skip a meal and be in a good place. So intermittently fasting is something I highly recommend for the majority of people. 
And then, yeah, so lunch and dinners, but I vary mine. So I don't do it every day. I do it days where I find if I'm not as physically active, I'll usually I'll do intermittent fast. And then I tend to find I have a bit more of a cognitive boost from doing that as well. So usually if you get yourself into a fasting state, you sort of tend to find you have a um, little lot more sort of like guess brain power than most people want to try. How often do you intermittently fast? So like how many times a week is that, that you're basically, and this is what I've heard before, sometimes people will stop even earlier, like five or six, and then they don't eat to noon the next day. So how many times a week will you do that? And then how many weeks in a row will you do that before you take a break? I do it quite consistently throughout the week. So I'm constantly sort of, I'm I'm always shifting and I'm always adapting it. So and I wouldn't actually, I don't have actually structure. I don't do like a Monday to Friday. I do it more so based on my day-to-day fluctuations. So if I know today I'm going to do this for, I know what's planned for the day, and then I'll go in, or if I'm going out somewhere, I'll just, I'll fast instead of going to eat somewhere. So I, mine varies quite frequently, but it's on average, I would say probably two to three times, or maybe even four times a week. I'll do, I'll go through those periods of, um, of intermittent fasting of between 14 and 18 hours. Okay. Interesting. And then, so I'll ask you this, since I know you're a bulletproof coach, you know, I've just read Dave Asprey's book, Headstrong, which is definitely very interesting. He makes him, he gives a lot of food for thought for sure. And one thing that he talks about is the benefits of, uh, he recommends drinking bulletproof coffee on the mornings that he fasts. Now, of course, this is a product that he's making and selling, but he also, you know, lays out some interesting arguments on why there are particular benefits to this specifically for enhancing cognitive function. So I'm curious if the bulletproof coffee is something that you drink on mornings when you're intermittently fasting. And if so, what are the benefits of that? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've actually gone off caffeine myself or coffee funnily enough if being a bulletproof coach it's still i think it's still a lot of people can benefit from that and they still enjoy their coffees i personally probably last year for most of the year i was drinking a bulletproof coffee almost every morning i was a diehard i was going for it so and it worked well i definitely got a cognitive boost from it but i found i'm at the stage now where i've i've optimized areas of my environment and lifestyle so much now that I no longer sort of benefit from caffeine. So personally, I've gone away from that myself. I, I do see a lot of people, a lot of benefit from Bulletproof Coffee. If people are just drinking normal coffee themselves and, and they want to get try to get maybe even lose some body fat percentage of weight or just gain some extra sort of cognitive power, Bulletproof Coffee is going to be highly sort of beneficial towards that. Having the, for starters, having the, if you're using the quality butter or ghee, I'd recommend ghee or it's a higher quality. It's, it's free of lactose and casein. So that's usually quite, a lot of people can't really handle the butter, but I'd recommend putting ghee in with their, um, their Bulletproof coffees. And then also the Bulletproof brand, Brain Octane Oil. I still use that myself. I find it's a very effective MCT oil, which is just a concentrated, I guess, coconut oil with ketones in there. The body be able to produce ketones quite easily and burn that instead of carbohydrates. So for a lot of people wanting to lose weight, I think it's a very great thing to try. I think it's more of a short, for me personally, I believe it's more of a short-term use. I wouldn't be drinking that every single day for the rest of your life. You'd probably find other problems might sneak up in you as well. So 
but yeah, bulletproof coffee with your brain octane oil and some ghee is a great place to start for most people. And you'll notice the satiation you get from that and also the cognitive boost. It's enough for people to sort of get addicted to it in a sense. I've sort of gone, gone away from that now and I, I still have my ghee. I enjoy ghee and I still have my brain octane oil. But I sort of gravitate more towards the teas now and, and the smoothies in the morning. Yeah, I wanted to ask you on that note. So one potential thought that I had, I'm sure many other people had about Bulletproof Coffee is, you know, the amount of saturated fat. And and I think saturated fat, and it isn't just Dave Asprey who's pointing this out, has been sort of the dangers of them have kind of been overly and unfairly maligned in that, in fact, some level of saturated fat could be a good thing. But I, I'm just curious if you measure it, if you measured, for example, your lipids or, you know, sort of cholesterol measures before using Bulletproof coffee and then after, and if you notice any particular uptake there. I actually didn't. To be, to be honest, I'm a, quite a pathetic biohacker. I haven't actually gone and got my full blood work done in, in a while. Mine's, I've gone, me personally, my whole approach and perspective is intuitively how you feel and how you feel sort of physically, energy, all that as well, and then gauge it by that. And so far, it's, it's worked well for me. Other people, they might have a lot of problems. They might want to go and actually get the blood work done. And the people that really want to actually see data um, to get it done before and then do a significant change in diet and then get it after. And you really want to see that. For me personally, just monitoring body fat percentage and muscle quality through different biohacking devices was enough for me to sort of see and also just to fit how I felt throughout the day too. I sort of gauged that. I had a very strong self-awareness, which I, um, I definitely advocate most people to sort of work on is that. Okay, cool. Well, let's sort of move on from nutrition. And I want to talk about sort of a core philosophy for you. And you talk about on your website that your approach to human health and potential is really guided by quantum health principles. And I was wondering if you could start by just explaining to the audience what quantum health is and what are those key principles? Yeah, it's actually quite funny. I've, in a way, I've worked backwards from where I've started, which was nutrition, and I've worked towards now, which is, I believe, is almost, in a sense, the as far as you can get, which is biophysics and quantum health, quantum biology. So it's everything to do with, again, like water magnetism is what the three major elements they focus on in biophysics. So light being sunlight, the easiest for people to understand, water being, I guess, the water quality and also cold thermogenesis, so ice bars and cold showers as well can be included in that at the same time. And then magnetism. Uh, refers to, I guess, earthing or grounding, so connecting your feet to the earth and getting the benefit from that. And then also under magnetism would be the EMFs, so electromagnetic frequencies from like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, from power lines and all the any sort of like electrical interferences that we get in dirty electricity in the, in the environment as well. There's sort of areas of focus that I've been on well, maybe the last 12 months or more and quite intensely I've been into that area and, and been reading up and listening and just absorb as much as I can. And intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to me as these elements were on this planet before we were. So I think they're going to have some, we thought, a massive impact on how our sort of biology works. So I've uh, been tweaking it on myself and I've been sort of learning along the way. So the whole light water magnetism, the actual practices themselves 
it's, it's super, super easy and really simple. The, the uh, I guess the information or data behind it is, is quite complex. So the study of biophysics and quantum biology is quite sort of a new realm that um, Dr. Jack Cruz is, I guess, a pioneer in that area. And it's a lot, I've, I've a lot of learned from him, been to a lot of his podcasts and read a lot of his stuff. And he's got a great book out there, um, Epipaleo RX, amongst many of other books out there. That's fantastic in, that, in the realm, at least, of that. So the quantum health area just resonated with me heavily. So when it comes to, I guess, light water magnetism, the, the easiest way to sort of think about it in terms of application for most people to understand is getting the adequate sun exposure. So obviously people go out there and these days, majority of people avoid the sun and they try to sort of um, shy away from it and say it gives you skin cancer and all that as well. And then others will go out there and just bake themselves in the sun. It's too much. You tend to be a, a sort of a society of extremes, but getting adequate sun exposure is absolutely, it's, it's, I've noticed myself, I personally, I push all these quantum health principles myself and make sure they're a priority first. And I believe they're the foundation of where the, um, our health should begin. And then from there, we work upwards towards everything from the sleep into nutrition to the movement. But I believe these these very ancient primal sort of elements are definitely the basis of it. From everything I've heard and learned, I'm still actually understanding so many elements that in itself. Water is very um, a complex study in itself. They just discovered the, the Jared Pollock's one of the best, um, I guess, water researchers out there with his book, The Fourth Phase of Water. So that area, again, I'm still trying to dive into and it gets really complex on the way. But I guess to come, yeah, it comes down to as light water magnetism is a light, obviously, the sun exposure. So getting the adequate sun exposure, so understanding your skin type and also understanding whereabouts you live on the planet, so latitude. So if you're closer to the equator, the sun will be a lot hotter and a lot stronger as well. So you won't need as much sunlight to be able to manufacture and produce um, vitamin D in your body as well as many other sort of cascade of hormones that run through your body that you get from sunlight. So I guess that, yeah, having the adequate amount of sun exposure, I guess, is vital for so many things. People get, I guess, get scared away from the idea that sun gives you skin cancer. But then you look out there, you study and look hard enough, you see that um, more um, the stats are showing that more people are actually dying from vitamin D deficient diseases. So it goes to show that I guess it's more the balance of things too. So just finding the balance and getting some sun exposure is better than avoiding it or it's getting too much at least. So when it comes to sun, that's definitely where they go. When it comes to water, the water quality is definitely a big one. Uh, tap water hey, Dan- is something. Hey, Dane, sorry. Can I stop you yeah. before we go forward on the water? I'm just curious to give folks yeah. some recommendation. And granted, it, it varies depending on where you are in the world. But if you can give idea... Uh, an idea to people on how much sun exposure they should get, you know, what's the ideal amount of vitamin D, which I know is essential for sort of everything from, you know, calcium in bones health to all these other things. How often, how many minutes a day should they be in the sun and what are the ideal times of the day to be getting that exposure? Yeah, I think the easiest way for people to get their heads around it is an, there's an app, a free app called D-Minder. And that is it's probably the most, I guess, functional uh, way to sort of track. You can actually track your vitamin D exposure. So you can type in, it actually uses your latitude, so where you are on the earth, and then it uses the UV exposure, how much you're getting based on that. And then also your skin type as well, how much skin is exposed. And then you can actually track the vitamin D. It's a very close estimate, but people, I guess, recommend people to go get the actual blood test as well for vitamin D so to see how far they are on the spectrum 
and if they need to get top ups as well, supplementation can be okay. But again, I, I guess it's supplementation for a reason to supplement the sun, not to use that in replace of the sun. So first thing, I guess the free app, Dminder, and then second, you can go and get you can go get your blood test and see what your vitamin D levels are like. And then if you need a top up, go for some supplementation as well. Okay, thanks for that tip. I'm actually going to check out Dminder. Thank you very much for that. So you were starting to talk about water. So by all means, please go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big topic to go into and I'm still understanding it myself and it's so complex. But the gathering of the whole tap water and everything that the water is so tainted now in the, in the planet, the first way of the whole, when it comes down to the water quality and how I guess the planet is made up of at least 70% water, our bodies are made up between approximately 70% water, our brains are made up primarily of, of water as well. So the fact that the water is all around us and it's like essential to life, that made a lot of sense to me that, of course, why wouldn't we put in the best quality water into our bodies as well? And so my, I've been fortunate enough being brought up on filtered water my whole life, so I never had tap water. So I know tap water can be full of a lot of neurotoxic chemicals as well that are coming out now. And a lot of studies coming from there. So a lot of these uh, health professionals that I follow and trust, they've exposed that for a long time now. And so sort of understanding the right types of water. So even when I thought filtered water was okay, it's still not the great water because it's still it's everything filtered out of it. So even the minerals that are quite important. Ideally, there's which is a free option. People who really are die hard for it. There's you can go and collect your spring water, which is what I do. I do that um, as a, with about an hour away from my place down here in Melbourne. There's um, a local spring which I go and collect water from. And a lot of people are just, I guess, on face value, most are quite scared to be able to collect water from a, a spring and then drink it. The fact that it's filtered through, like as aquifers deep in the earth, goes through there. It's it's full of natural minerals that we need in our bodies. And it's the way we sort of were on this, on this planet, they were meant to be drinking water anyway. Nothing was meant to be added into fluoride and everything else into the into the body. So spring water, I guess, would be the, a, a good free option for most people to go and try. Great place to start with that would be findaspring.com. You can go find, there's a lot of the springs around the States and in Australia, here's a few as well. So you can find it whereabouts in the you are where you live in the world and then you have a check and see if there's any springs near you. So that'd be a great option for people that are really interested in getting quality water. It'd be a findaspring.com. And then otherwise, a second option would be it's just a good reverse osmosis system as well that remineralizes the water as well. So having making sure that you get rid of all that junk in the actual water, clearing it out, but also remineralizing it with the right minerals to get into your bodies as well. Uh, that's what I noticed is um, made a big difference to me. Personally, I'm always drinking the quality of water, but I'm always going out with bottled water as well and drinking out of glass as well. It's ideal. So avoiding plastic because um, plastic leaches into the water. So there, I guess, the most practical, I guess, tips for that, the actual science behind water and how it all works. It's very confusing and um, I guess it's probably easiest to people can just go and check out. They can, want, they can Google Gerald Pollack, check out his book, The Fourth Phase of Water. He's one of the pioneers and definitely with the water research. Was there a website or an app you said for checking out where the spring water is near you? Yeah, yes, that's findaspring.com. Findaspring.com. That's a good tip, and we can include that in the show notes as well. Okay, so talking about, let's see, water was key. And then I know another area of, big area of, of passion for you is light, both natural light and the problems with manufactured light. So, can you talk about 
that why is light so important and how does that affect our health? It's crazy how you know, so many people are unaware of, well, I wasn't actually, I was unaware of how important the element of light is from sun exposure to to blue light artificial exposure as well until of, I guess of late when I just dug further into these studies. So I guess most people are aware of there's like the new update that came the, um, came with Apple not long ago, the night shift. We can go on your phone, we can switch to night shift and it makes your screen a little orange. So the whole idea behind that is to block out some of that blue light. I don't believe it's what Apple, what Apple have done is good enough with the blocking it out. Is this a sort of, it's not effective enough. So I do, uh, like myself and many other biohackers, we take um, measures a bit, f- a bit further and a bit more effective. So the practice of, if people aren't familiar with, they can quite easily just Google blue light blocking glasses or they can just, um, they can go check out. There's so many different companies now popping up with these um, funny looking orange glasses. Does anybody have seen them wearing that? Uh, I wear mine everywhere from sunset. So, so I'm really, really aware and conscious of how detrimental the artificial blue light is to, towards your eyes. Um, there's blue light within the sun, but that's a balance. It's in a balanced spectrum. But when it comes from uh, your computer screens, your iPhones, your TV screens, all that as well, even LED lighting, having expo- being exposed to that after dark is definitely not ideal for the human body. It just tricks the brain and body to think it's still daytime. Uh, so it's to be able to block that at night. It allows your body to then release the, the proper amount of melatonin, which allows you to go to sleep better and then all that as well. So it's definitely in an entire with sleeping well, and it's a whole sort of circle and cycle and that. So the blue light blocking glasses is something I recommend people when they want to spend a lot of money. There's very cheap ones out there. They can jump on Amazon and I think you can get it for about eight bucks if you type in blue light blocking glasses. And there's funny looking safety glasses that you can wear at night. So if you're at home, you can quite easily put them on at home and just get used to it there and then just i guess within a, i know within a couple of days you'll notice a huge difference your eyes will get heavy and you'll be able to sleep a lot better as well so and then when you don't wear them um me personally i'm because i wear them so often now once sunset hits that i i definitely notice when i'm not wearing them so it's they my eyes are a lot more sensitive to the, the artificial blue what is blue light exactly it's a blue light that it's in, that's emitted from the artificial screen. So all that as well. That's it's not a natural spectrum of light that we've been exposed to, and we shouldn't be exposed to that kind of lighting anytime after sunset. Um, so when the sun sets, our body's designed to be in darkness. It's how we've evolved, and so when we're exposed to this high frequency of blue light, it's not perceived as blue from the eye. It's perceived more as a white light. But if you look at it on the color spectrum, it's in the blue spectrum, and it's quite a high spike in the, um, the nanometers of blue as well. So most of the screens emit quite a sort of a high level of um of blue light from there, which it does obviously towards one thing. It does actually it it blocks the melatonin release in your brain uh, from, from your pineal gland at night. So that's not ideal to be able to help you go to sleep and interrupt your sleep phases and cycles. Um, but it also is detrimental towards your eyes and your, um, your DHA in your eyes as well. So to summarize, we need to sort of keep this blue light out because what essentially it's doing, especially after the sun goes down, it's basically tricking our body into not producing melatonin, which would help us to fall asleep and get a proper night's sleep and rest our bodies. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's even throughout the daytime, myself and many other biohackers, we've taken it again a step further and we um, are blocked blue 24-7 now. So I don't see it. There's no benefit from getting blue light from screens. Um, it's the wear of how much how damaging it is towards on many levels. 
So, but the, yeah, for the, most people to sort of start with, I guess it's, yeah, to block it from sunset downwards. So where we're wearing blue blocking glasses, you can just Google it. There's so many out there and you can find a style that I guess and, and sort of price tag that can fit to your lifestyle as well. Um, that's ideal. And also just having the, um, yeah, putting them on from sunset and you notice a huge difference in that in a sense. Uh, so it's not good during the day either. So what do you do? Do you wear the glasses during the day or do you use an app or a installed application like Flux to block that? Yeah. So I use, there's a program I use called Iris, I-R-I-S, and that's the, the most effective program or software that I recommend and it, where it's very highly customizable. So you can set timers, you can set the frequency of the light, so you can make a lot more orange towards a sort of a candle light. That's, again, it's the best software I've come across and most of the people within the biohacking space have all using Iris now. Flux was a great, I guess, free one. Iris is free as well, but you can pay, I think it's paid $10 and you'll get like a pro version where you get like it's hugely customizable. So I had that installed on my laptop when I'm working during the day. And it's also, there's a free version you can install onto your iPhones as well. So my screens are always orange. My friends know <laughs> it's frustrating to um, look at my phone because it's always orange for my screen. But that's the people that are really, really, um, I guess, conscious of how, how detrimental blue light is. And it's just a matter of time before there's enough proper data out there um, and studies to actually prove that. There are some now that are leaking through. I'm slowly getting through there. But there's an, I mean, I understand the biophysics enough to sort of avoid it. I stick to sunlight and natural sources. So is Iris an app as well then for your phone? Yeah, yeah. So it comes in, it, it works through, you have to install it through your computer and then it goes through to your iPhone. So it's a free app. It's all through, I think it's iristech.co. I'm not entirely sure. They Google Iris blue blocking. you will be able to find that. And yeah, the software goes installed in your computer and then there's a free iOS version that can go into your iPhone as well. Cool. All right, great tip. Thank you, Dane. So let's talk about, because I know this is, we've started to touch already on how blue light affects sleep and sleep is something that is one of the most important things for our health and longevity. And increasingly, especially in the West, people are having more and more problems with sleep. So let's talk a little bit about, in your experience, what are the most common impediments to a good night's sleep? Yeah, there's so many out there. Sleep is the a particular focus of, of mine and I guess to sort of narrow it down to the most important ones again light is a huge one that can make a huge difference in your sleep quality it's why I'm constantly focusing on that and I'm trying to push out as much um, sort of information and awareness to people as possible so having the blue blocking glasses is I find is just absolutely just an, it's vital for the sleep quality um, you notice a difference in that within a day within the first time of using it which is great a lot of people a lot of these things can take time and to so to see any sort of significant improvement whereas the blue light blocking glasses that there would be enough to sort of you notice yourself getting tired quite easily after wearing them so light's been definitely one of them what other important factors this is probably the second important factor would be emfs so emfs being electromagnetic frequencies everything from wi-fi to sort of cellular data, to smart meters, all that as well. So to be able to sleep well at night and get the proper sleep cycles and deep sleep, I highly recommend people to, to switch off their Wi-Fi router and put their phone in airplane mode and then anything else is electronic in their room, switch it off and unplug it from the system. So Because there's all these little frequencies that are interfering with our brainwaves. So when we're trying to get our deep sleep, you can't properly get to the sleep. 
So if they want to um, even see proper data on that and actually see how that might be impacting them, there's a great little um, wearable that I currently have is the Aura Ring and then um, can, you can track your sleep on that. So I've been mean, using that for the last 18 months now. So that's so that I can track my data and my sleep and see my sleep cycle. So if somebody that really wants to see objective data and see how that actually is improving their sleep, they can do before and afters and use an Aura Ring. It's the most accurate sleep tracker that I'm aware of out there, apart from, I guess, a sleep study. You can go there. So having, yeah, blocking the blue light at night with your, your glasses is, is vital. And then when you go to bed at night, having, I guess, a, a cool room, a cool, dark room, not too cold, not too hot. It has to be quite sort of cool temperature. You guys find what's best for you. But also having the EMFs as much as possible. The easiest things you can do is switching off Wi-Fi, putting your phone in airplane mode and switching and unplugging all electronics in your bedroom. And if then there are also other frequencies that can still get in. So then it might be ideal if people have the money to go and see, and I guess, or hire a building biologist, an EMF expert or a, um, or a geovital technician. And they can actually go and find there may be actually more to it, which you, we can't see. So, they will have meters and they'll be able to measure areas in your room and actually improve your sleep as well. So, that then costs a bit and goes into it. But I guess the free options would be what I mentioned before. Was this the track, the sleep tracker you referred to, was this the Aura Ring that you told me about? Yes. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely would want to take you up on that and, and get the new model. When it comes out in April, I took a look and it looks it looks really high quality. I noticed there are a couple different models. Do you have any particular recommendation on which model you would recommend or were they literally just different designs? That's all. There's no difference in functionality. Yeah, it's literally just designed for them. For me personally, even if it was the size of a truck, I'd still wear it on my finger. It's that valuable. <laughs> the new designs are even smaller again. So the one that I got the first series one, I've had it for the last I guess 18 months and it's, it is a quite a large ring. A lot of people might not be comfortable wearing that. But the, the new ones coming out in April, they're at least probably half the size and they're, they're tiny. So again, it won't, it'd be less interference. But it's, yeah, the amount of value I got from it and I believe a lot of people can get from it is yeah, quite large. Cool. So talking about lighting, you know, one thing I've been reading a bit about, we just touched on some of the problems of lighting and specifically blue lighting, though we talked about the importance of of sunlight and vitamin D. I've been reading about benefits of ultraviolet red light. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, it's a very popular, I guess, craze that's going now in the biohacking community. Everyone's getting really hard into the the red lights. There are so many out there. It sort of does my head in <laughs> trying to find out and decipher and discern which is the best to use and to try out. I personally haven't gone with any yet. I'm still sort of looking around and seeing what's out there and what people are using and getting benefit from. I know a lot of products out there, I guess the Juve light, if people want to check out the Juve light, these, these lights become quite expensive. That is a problem. So a lot of my work that I'm particularly focusing on is more, I guess, applicable to the masses where it's things that are free and that can be done in your lifestyle. So everything with the sun and all that is quite easy. You get the UV from the sun as well, the infrared, you get all that as it's free. So the, but then people, I guess, can't get all the sun. This can be a great supplementation towards that. So getting exposed to the, um, the red light at night and there's, there's different products that are popping up from there. So I know there's definitely a few companies that I've been keeping my eye on and doing a pretty good job. So it's Juve Light. I think it's J double O, possibly double V. They, they've got their own like red light strip, 
which um, which seems to be quite effective. And I know Ben Greenfield and a lot of other health professionals have been using that in itself. And there's also another brand I, I've kept my eye on too. Uh, I think it's called a Red Red Juvenator. So if people want to check them out, they're also ones that I've seen a lot and I've had a lot of good things from. But in terms of the science itself, I'm still very quite new to that area. I'm still keeping my eye out and seeing what's going on. But it's, it's, yeah, it's a very sort of new field where I'm sort of watching it from afar at this stage. Right. One thing I want to touch on and stop me if there's anything else, actually, because I'm about to pivot. Was there anything else you wanted to add about lighting and sleep? Because I know you have a lot to say there. No, I mean, yeah, I can speak for days, I guess, or weeks on that. But no, that's it's probably I've... I think I've hit the tie, um, hit the mark in terms of what's the most, I guess, easiest thing for people to apply now. So, okay, perfect. I wanted to ask you about, and you t- you mentioned it at the beginning of the conversation, but I've been hearing a lot recently about the benefits of cold showers, or even more than that. Really, I mean, I know Tim Ferriss is someone who brought my attention to it. He takes basically ice baths for five or 10 minutes. I know that Tony Robbins steps into a cryogenic freezer (laughs) and obviously cold showers would be sort of a more accessible, less expensive way to do that. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what are the benefits of doing so and then kind of get into, you know, specifically for people who aren't able to measure it with like a cryogenic freezer, exactly how cold does it have to be in order to reap these benefits? Yeah, cold showers is definitely something I've I've actually been doing it for the last almost two years now. And cold showers I find are the most definitely easiest for everyone to sort of do as well. And the whole sort of premise came from behind that. I the Wim Hof, if people want to check out Wim Hof and his stuff is pretty sensational and what he what he does and that whole it just makes again it made a lot of sense to me being exposed to the cold is what most of us don't do these days um, we tend to sort of control our environment so if we're if it's hot we're trying to cool things down if it's too cold we're trying to warm things up so being exposed to the cold and the elements in that sense there it, it it hasn't a quite an adaptive response in your body, very primal sense of things. So especially on the immune system, immune function, it's probably the biggest focus. So for me, particularly since I've done it, I've done it essentially every day for the last two years. And since then I haven't got, uh, haven't had a cold of being sick. So, um, and I mean, it, it's definitely a contributing factor. It's not the only factor, but that was one thing that I shifted in my, I guess, lifestyle, which had a huge impact into, on my immune system, immune function as well. So, having cold showers, I believe, to be yeah, hugely accessible for most people. And for most of the, actually, large part of the planet, that's all they have is just cold showers. It, for a lot of us in the Western countries, we're quite privileged to have the, the ability to have warm showers as well. So, just be able to, to fight yourself and turn off the hot and just feel the cold as well. For one, it's actually, yeah, it helps a lot with the um, the mental power, but also the cold thing and behind cold thermogenesis. So, um, ideally having a hitting on your, your chest and your heart, your prefrontal cortex, your brain. It's where the largest, largest amount of mitochondria is um, concentrated in our bodies. And so, having that area there hit with the cold, um, it allows your body to sort of get into a, a fat-burning um, state. So, a lot of people that are looking towards losing some body fat as well, it can sort of it helps with the conversion of, um, of white fat to brown fat, which is a highly um, metabolically active version of fat. So, it's definitely a way to go, cold showers. Again, cryotherapy is popping up a lot too. That's an, an area which is um, people can go, it's, it's quite a little buzz. Again, it's quite expensive. So, if people that can afford to you want to try it out, definitely can go for it. You can get yeah, freezing cold and you're in there for one or two minutes. Depends on how cold you want to get in there for. So, 
Right. So that's one benefit I've heard. It, it converts white fat to brown fat, which is better for metabolism. Specifically, do you know how does it boost your immunity in terms of the, the science of that? In terms of the science, oh man, the this, this problem is that there's so many, I guess, hormetic responses in the body that comes from being exposed to the cold and how often you are exposed to the cold. So if you're doing it every day, like what I've been doing, um, a lot of people if you're doing this once or so a week, it will have some benefit. But again, the cumulative effect of these things over time have a lot more benefit. So if you want to get even more benefit, jump into an ice bath and that's even more benefit again. So an ice bath has, I guess, a higher a hormonal response as well to your body. So yeah, to be honest, I think the whole science behind the, the immune system function is that we're not your body's not if you're constantly exposed to the same temperature and the same level, you're not really ever sort of stressing the body in a sense. But you're stressing it to a little bit of cold in a good way for a short period of time, enough to sort of build that immune strength and system up as well. So being exposed to the cold for too long, obviously, chronically, that's not ideal and that you eventually break down. That's not good for the immune system. But from my understanding, the whole sort of acute response um, you get from the cold, again, from a short period of time. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's sort of like all these things that are good for your health. It's stress in moderate doses, right? Whether it's, you know, lifting weights or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's basically just another form of a moderate dose of stress. Exactly. One thing I wanted to ask about was, and in, in, we got into this a little bit with the things that disrupt sleep with the EMFs, but I wanted to talk about the impact of, of smartphones and, and not only with the lighting, but what are the other potential risks that you think come with either, whether it's Using a phone, I know people. some people claim, and this is the whole thing, we're kind of the first generation of people using phones all the time, and we don't know a lot about the long-term consequences of this. And whether it's holding a smartphone to your ear, whether it's having a phone on you, whether it's the Apple Watch, kind of what are your thoughts on the impact of the smartphones in terms of EMFs beyond just staring at a screen? And what are some things that people should watch out for and possible precautions they can take. Yeah, that's, that's the particular, as you mentioned, that you're hitting the head, nail on the head right there with them saying how we, we just don't know. And the people that they're actually, just, with technology just keeps racing ahead, but we're not actually stopping for a minute to check how that might actually be impacting our biology. And that's the whole thing behind, I guess, the whole biophysics movement and quantum biology and the biohackers are getting really hard into that area as well. It's, uh, it's for, uh, for one, obviously, it, the new generation of kids that are addicted to phones, um, addiction is one thing, which is terrible, but the actual, in, in the sense, the EMF that's rolling out as well. So the data, the cellular data that's, that's jumped to 5G now, definitely in Australia and the US as well, that would just increase the, the bandwidth and the speed, which is not going to be good for the, um, <laughs> for the new generation, especially for kids when their brains are still forming and their skulls are still quite thin and fragile. So getting exposure to that. Dr. Jack Cruz speaks about that a lot. Being a neurosurgeon, he's seen a lot of people come in now, a lot of younger people come in with quite bad, um, a lot of eye problems as well, but also yeah, brain tumors as well on top of that. And so from him, he's, he works firsthand with that. So yeah, I trust his sort of um, his knowledge and where he's been in that and where he's going with it all. So I mean, keep an eye on him and I like a lot of his work. And that's how I got into sort of biophysics at least. Yeah, he, he goes very complex way of understanding that. There's a lot of other people out there 
that are again that are pushing it as well. So there's let me so many TED talks that are popping up now is Google <laughs> cell phone radiation and you'll come up with so many articles. It's slowly getting to the mainstream. But if yeah, a lot of people are it's still just I guess ignoring it in a sense or just uh, un- unfortunately unaware of the detrimental effects they have on you know, um, on the biology. Um, for me, again, a lot of these things just intuitively make sense. These technologies, we, we never evolved with these technologies in our lives. So therefore, I'm like, for me, it's like, well, they're surely going to have some biological effect, whether it's good or bad. Um, we still don't know yet. There's not enough data out there, but I'd rather not risk it <laughs> for myself personally. So I take the precautions, which are quite effortless, which is just flicking your phone on airplane mode at night, uh, using an air tube headset when I'm doing phone calls, so I'm not getting the radiation through the brain, and then just yeah, trying to be is I guess clever with my um awareness as well, conscious of how I'm using my phone and how often. For people who are interested in learning more about this, and I'm I'm going to give you a sec, I'm going to give you an opportunity because we're starting to wrap up where they can contact you specifically. But before we get to that, I'm wondering, you know, what are what's a book that you've read that has totally, you know, changed your life in this direction? Or you mentioned Dr. Jack Cruz. I'm, I'm wondering whether you can throw out some other names, whether it's a book, whether it's a conference that people should go to, but just suggestions for how people can really get started and, and dive deeper if they're ready to dive deeper. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm more than happy for people to reach out to me and I can give them more recommendations. In terms of books, that's definitely where I've got a lot of my knowledge from. Tend to sort of, I've been consuming a lot of books over the past year or two. For EMFs, a great, great book and very easily read is Overpowered by Martin Blank. Um, I highly recommend that as a very big book as well, as well as In the Dark by um, Jason Borden Smith. He's an Australian author as well, and he's sort of pioneering the movement of the. There's a group called EMF Warriors um, on Facebook, which is growing. It's just about growing the awareness of that as well, amongst many, many other books as well that I would recommend. But for off the top of my head, those two were definitely quite pivotal in my life. Okay, excellent. Well, Dane, where can folks find you if they want to learn more about? your work or, you know, your thoughts on all these different subjects that you've shared with us? They can go through my website. So, you can go to www.danebarkley.com. You can shoot me an email there about any questions about anything. Or you can also find me on, um, on Instagram as well, um, at danebarkley, all lowercase, one word. And you can shoot me a DM and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you have or any recommendations for books or videos or anything. I'm happy just to share it because I really want to get the awareness out here. Excellent. Well, Dane, thank you so much for your time. You are full of great tips and I really appreciate you coming on the show. No, thanks for having me, Adrian. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dane. Let's talk again soon. Thank you so much for listening to Hacking the Self. While I'm having to get the intro and outro narration and music for this show reproduced for the new title, you'll have to settle for my voice. But... I just wanted to ask you to please reach out with your comments and thoughts on the show. So you can contact me at hackingtheself at gmail.com. Also the handles on Twitter at hackingtheself or the Facebook page for Hacking the Self. Any of those are great forums to contact me and share your thoughts, share your suggestions, throw out your questions. And if you're enjoying the show, would please ask that you consider supporting us by sharing the episodes or any of the posts on your own social media platforms 
or by making a small contribution at patreon.com slash hacking the self. Even just giving $1 an episode would be enough to make the show financially sustainable. So would love your support if you're willing to do so. I really would like to keep the show ad free and any contribution you can make would be a, a huge help in that direction. So thank you so much for listening. Look forward to bringing you another great episode next week and take care.